Okay, everyone. Can you stand with me? And we will read Revelation 4. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne were something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, the third creature had a face like a, that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having the six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is coming. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Please be seated. In my hand you will notice that I'm holding a pair of eyeglasses. For many of you in here who have experienced a decline in your vision, like I have in the last six months, <laughs> thanks to being 40 plus, you know how extremely valuable these can be. They help you read books that uh, otherwise would be unattainable. They help you not spill your coffee in the morning, stub your toe late at night, or find the back of your earring frantically on the carpet floor as you're looking for it before church starts. For those of us who wear them, I don't have to try to convince you of uh, what a tremendous benefit they can be. And, and you know how they can help us navigate safely through life and overcome potential dangers and obstacles. Now, I realize everyone in here doesn't wear glasses. But I want to suggest to you this morning that even if you don't wear ones from the optometrist, you all wear glasses still the same. You wear glasses of a different sort. And, they, and there are, it's the lens by which you and I view the world around us. It's a, it's a lens shaped by the influence of your parents. It's a lens shaped by your family of origin, by your teachers, by your coaches, by your pastors by your friends, and especially the culture that we live in. So whether we recognize it or not, this lens we wear all contributes to the choices that we make in life. What we hold as being valuable, what we determine as being important, what we're willing to risk, what we're willing to fight for, what we're willing to compromise, and the list goes on. Now, before we jump into the first verse of chapter 4, 
I want just to take a couple of minutes with you to remind you and help us remember of the lens by which the first century Christians lived in the churches in Asia Minor. Remember everything we've learned so far. If you were a follower of Jesus back then, you were constantly bombarded with powerful images of the Roman Empire. You'd walk the streets for leisure or to get to work, and you'd see massive temples and statues dedicated to the various gods and emperors that your city held in honor. There was ample opportunity to participate in the different festivals and rituals and songs of praise dedicated to these gods. As one commentator said and, uh, very rightly, in terms of living under the Roman rule, everything in Roman society was structured to make you stop and renew your awe towards the supposed powers that be that determine the quality, security, and stability of your life. Everything in the Roman Empire was to make you go, we need you and what you have to offer to survive in this world. Your security rests in us and our gods. So you'll remember then from everything we've learned, as a Christian, you lived in a society where the temptation to be pulled back into idolatry that, the, that, that Jesus had saved you from was very real, was very real and very tempting. And what we learned from the messages to the seven churches is that many of the uh, Christians back then had compromised. The awe that the Roman Empire offered had been adopted by them. They had fallen back into old patterns and into back into life of sin in many ways. And so Jesus, of course, had to correct them with the seven messages to the churches. So heading into chapter 4 then, what Jesus seeks to do through John is to give him another vision with one pastoral goal. And that was to help the believers in Asia Minor get a new prescription to get their glasses cleaned, to upgrade their, their, their visionary care, so to speak, and change their lens. And the message was this, despite what the culture seems around you and screams around you, I want you to get a clear sense as to who truly exercises ultimate authority over the world that you live in and who actually holds your destiny in their hand and who is truly worthy of worship. So how was Jesus going to get that vision across? By inviting John and, and us, therefore, through a door into the throne room of heaven. So let's look at verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. The first thing we need to discover here is what does John mean by these things or after these things? Because it's a phrase, as you noticed, used twice in verse one. He starts off with those words and he finishes verse one with those words. So the natural question I asked myself in my studies was, what things is Jesus referring to? Well, the answer to that is quite simple and requires us to go back to chapters one through three 
to remember what John had experienced so far. And you remember that on the island of Patmos, while he was in exile, he was given his first vision. And in the first vision, there were two events. First one was this, that he received a majestic picture of Jesus. Remember, he had eyes like the flaming fire, feet like burnished bronze and things like that. And then right after that vision, he was told to write down seven messages to the churches and pass them on. So these are the two events that have happened in his first vision. So John says, after these things, AKA the first vision and those two events, I want to tell you, come up here so I can show you what must take place next. And by what he means by what must take place next, he's not referring to a timeline per se, he's referring to the next vision that he's going to receive. Let me give you the next vision that must occur after your first vision. And that's like super important. And it's a common phrase actually in Revelation. After these things is used often to introduce a new vision that John is about to receive. So before we look at this first vision in detail, let me remind you of something I introduced to you in the first sermons. Remember we spoke about how important it was to understand the Old Testament in terms of interpreting Revelation correctly. You have to, 278 out of the 404 verses have a direct allusion to or a story from the Old Testament. So 70% of Revelation wants you to look back to the Old Testament. Well, nothing could be more true in this passage here today. There are tons of references. In fact, every verse has a scripture you could put behind it in terms of the Old Testament. But primarily what John has rooted this in is Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1. If you'd like to do homework for fun and reading, please read that and you'll see the parallels. But let me just show you quickly the parallels between the two passages. So we read in Revelation 4 about lightning. In Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 4, he speaks of flashes of lightning. We're introduced here to four living creatures. In Ezekiel, we see these same creatures in verses 5, 10, and 18. We're introduced in Revelation to a, a sea of crystal. Well, it's also in Ezekiel, but it's a sky of crystal. We're introduced to a throne room scene here. And in Ezekiel, we have the same thing in verse 26. And we see a, a, a talk about a rainbow and sort of gems and whatnot. And again, we have this in Ezekiel. So John is thinking Ezekiel when he's thinking about writing this revelation down. And that's why the parallels are so striking from, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So really what John is trying to do is root you in the Old Testament, but at the same time, he's trying to, with his, the best of his human understanding and capabilities, explain the unexplainable. That's why you'll see things like, I saw a God looking like something, or, you know, or uh, these creatures look like this. He's not saying, I literally see that. He's saying they're like that. That's his, his comparative language to best describe what is rich, really undescribable. And so this is what's so amazing about our, the call to the calendar we want to do together. You are to use your imagination in terms of what you see here. So with this in background now, let's look at verse 2. He says, immediately after, oh sorry, immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting on the throne was like Jasper stone and Astartius in appearance. 
and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. When John first entered through the door, the first thing he saw was a throne, and by his own words, one sitting on it. Now, while John doesn't initially name who it was he saw, we know from the context that it was clearly God that he had in mind. Verse 8 makes that very clear when he records that the, the cherubim, or these four living creatures, cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the 24 elders, they cry out in verse 11, Worthy are you, O Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. So clearly we know who God has in mind, or sorry, John has in mind that it's God that he encounters. And the fact that he was sitting on the throne is important because that's a posture of reign. That's a posture of reigning. You see lots of like, you know, uh, shows and movies where they enter into the king's presence, and, and when you walk down that long corridor with all the attendants around, the king's always dressed in their majesty, like with, you know, with their arms crossed and all their attire, and that's a position of power and authority. So right off the bat, in terms of giving these believers a new lens, a new pair of glasses, he, he's going to bring clarity right off the cuff here. He says, I know at times in life, church, you might think that the headquarters, supreme headquarters are vacant by the things going on around you, but I want you to know that they're not. There is one in the heavens who exercises supreme authority, and it's not Zeus or Emperor Augustus at the helm. It's God himself who ultimately rules and reigns over the universe. I think it's important for us to remember this as well. As often in our experience of life, we think headquarters in heaven are vacant. And the glasses of the world that we live in tell us that God can't be there and not exercising authority because there's injustice. There's tyranny. There's death. There's unfairness. There are natural disasters. And so when things go wrong, we automatically think the command center must be vacant. No one's home. This is why John's message is so important to us. Because despite the circumstances these Christians were facing, John wants to say, listen, get your perspective right. There is one in heaven who ultimately rules. He knows everything that's going on, and everything is under his power and control. But notice how John seeks to describe him in verse 3. He calls him, he, he, he describes him this way. He was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and a rainbow surrounded the throne. Because God is spirit and has no human form, John has to do everything in his human sort of power to describe and capture God's splendor and what it was like to be in his presence. And so he compares him to precious gems the most precious gems in the world that are brilliant and radiant, that reflect light in magnificent ways. Now, jasper can be various colors, but we know um, that what he has in mind is one that was crystal clear and brilliant like a diamond. The reason we know this is in Revelation 21 and 11, New Jerusalem is described as coming down out of heaven, and it says this about New Jerusalem, having the glory of God her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. 
So, so John wants to say this to us as, 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 as followers of him, uh, followers of Jesus. He says, I want you to understand God's glory through understanding this clear crystal. He was brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant and magnificent and reflects light in all sorts of ways, kind of like a diamond, and understand God in that way. The sardius stone was red, and apparently when held in a hand, looked like fire smoldering. So when you stared at the rock, it kind of looked like something internally was moving within it. Some think within the Christian community that this is a reference to God's wrath on sin, this, this red color, and that very well may be. But regardless, here's what you, can't, you don't want you to miss. Really, John speaks of God who projects an aura or brilliance resembling nothing on earth except its most precious gems. And he says of the rainbow also surrounded the throne and it was emerald in color. Now there's some debate as to, uh, you know, if he actually meant a rainbow like we saw in Genesis or if it was something else because the Greek word actually means halo. But I think um, regardless of uh, which way we take it, we have to think of what the rainbow symbolized in the book of uh, Genesis. Remember, after the flood, God put a rainbow in the sky and he said, I'm making a covenant with you that I will never flood the world again. And so the rainbow in that context represents God's mercy and his covenant faithfulness to his people. Again, in, a, in an attempt to help the early Christians and even us get a, uh, get a refocus, like to get our vision corrected, he wants to help us see the glory of God and how brilliant and magnificent he is. And no doubt that was in, in a direct correlation to what the emperors and all the temples had to offer in their world. Remember the, 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 his comment by the commentator, everything in Roman society was structured to make you stop and renew your awe. And John wants to say, you think that's impressive? Let me tell you what it's like to be in the presence of God. Nothing compares. So that's what John saw on the throne. Let's look at now what he saw around the throne. He says, around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now there's huge debate within the Christian community as to who these 24 are. And I want to read you a quote from Gordon Fee, who's a theological giant, someone, a man I totally respect within the, the scholarly community. This is what Fee said. There is nothing close to consensus among scholars as to what the, who the 24 elders are. <laughs> right? There's nothing close to consensus amongst the scholars. So what I'm going to do is stand up here and say, I'm going to present to you possibilities, but you get to ultimately decide, and then we'll go from there. Some will suggest these 24 elders represent angelic beings. But others suggest that they represent the church in its entirety. And the reason is, is because in Revelation chapter 21, when describing the new Jerusalem, it says in 12 through verse, through verse, through verse 14, that, that there were 12 tribes and scribes on the gates of the new Jerusalem, and there were 12 apostles on the foundations. So 12 plus 12 is 24, 12 
from the Old Testament and 12 from the New represents the total completion of God's people. And so, um, again, remember uh, 12 in the, and uh, we learned in Numbers, through Numbers, that 12 represents the people of God in completeness. So it's not that there were 24 people in total, it just represents the completeness of God's people and the entire church. Further support of this is that um, you'll know that the Bible often re represents uh, us as being priests, right? In 1 Peter, even in, the, in chapter 5, verse 8, it talks about us being kingdom of priests in the, in the Lord's temple. Well, the word 20, the number 24 occurs uh, once in uh, the Old Testament in 1 Chronicles 24. And this is where David divided the priests that served in the earthly temple into 24 shifts, if you will. And so because there were thousands of them, you'd only have to serve twice a year as a priest for one week in the temple. The exception would be maybe uh, some of the feasts and festivals, but generally speaking, you had two shifts a year, one week at a time, because it was divided into 24 courses. So therefore, because of that reference in Chronicles and the Bible calling us priests, this is further evidence that this could be a reference to the church in entirety and represent all the redeemed, like basically Christians throughout the history. So it's probably safe to say then, that this is a heavenly representative of God's people. But I don't think it's important to get hung up on their identity, but more importantly, to get hung up on their activity. <laughs> Not on their identity, but on their activity. In verse 11, we're going to see that they are there to worship God. So we looked at what's on the throne. We've now looked at what surrounded the throne. Now we're going to look at what's coming from the throne and found in front of the throne. And we start in verse 5. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. John tells us that what's coming from the throne was a sound and a sight like thunder and lightning. We have to think Exodus here. Exodus here. Remember Exodus 19? In Exodus 19, and in actually 2018, this is the scene when the law was going to be given. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain and was covered in smoke. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain smoke, they trembled with fear and they stayed at a distance. They stayed at a distance. It's interesting, when they received the law and God showed up in this way, there was a reverence and fear for the Lord. They recognized that he wasn't someone to get too close to without him making provisions for you to get close to. And so this was a real strong picture and when they saw and heard these sights they were fearful of the lord and gave him the respect that was due well it's interesting throughout revelation we're going to see this over and over through the 22 chapters 
Every time God's judge, uh, judgment unfolds, you're going to see peals of thunder and lightning throughout the book. And so what I think he's, what John is telling us is this, is that God is faithful to his people with the rainbow. He's brilliant and beautiful, you know, as the gems suggest. But at the same time, he's one that you need to respect and honor and show reverence for. And he ultimately still has the authority as judge. And as Christians, we need to get this balance right, this, this balance of God's mercy, but also God's sort of judgment if needed. And it's an important thing to understand. So before the throne and in front of the throne, Jaw saw two things. He saw seven lamps burning uh, fire. And there's no need to wonder what's going on here because it's interpreted for us, right? He says there that these seven lamps are the seven spirits of God. This goes back to Revelation chapter 1, and we know what that means. Seven is the perfect number. It represents the Holy Spirit in his fullness. It's the Holy Spirit in his fullness. So this, the Holy Spirit is present in heaven at the throne of God. And then he talks about the sea of glass. And the sea of glass, again, we saw in Ezekiel chapter 1 was there, except it was the sky. But what's important about this one is in Exodus 24.10, Moses and his brother and some of the elders went up to the mountain to commune with God. And when they got there, this is what, they, this is what Exodus 24 says that they saw. It says, under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. So again, you weren't allowed to see God's form in those days, you would die. <laughs> so God gave them a picture of what it was like to be in his presence, and he gives them a, a, a basically a, a bright blue sky as a, like a pavement of glass. And so no doubt, John is drawing on that, that, that type of analogy to say, again, this is what it's like to be in God's presence. It's absolutely brilliant. And the sea in the Old Testament is often pictured as, a, as something to be feared, right? It's like almost like a monster. The sea is always like something that's in turmoil. But here the sea in heaven is perfectly calm. God has the power to even calm the storm, so to speak. Again, all these things are attempt by John to describe his magnificent, transcendent glory and to bring you in awe of him as opposed to the, the culture around you which screams to put your awe in that. So here's where John's vision gets a little interesting in verse 6. He says, In the center and around the throne there were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature was like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. Like the 24 elders, there's a lot of debate as to who these living beings are and what they represent. But they do have a prominent place in Revelation, and as we get on in the book, perhaps we will have a clearer understanding of them. But they're important because they're mentioned 14 times in this letter alone. Now, many people think these are a high order of angels, a high order of angels, because in Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6, we see these cherubim and seraphim that match the description written by John, although there's slight differences. But others believe that they're not really angels, and they just really, or they 
a big aspect of their angelic form is that they just represent all living things in creation. It's a, it's a picture of all the living things in creation. And that's because of the description John gives them. The lion, for example, represents all wild creatures. The calf represents all domestic creatures. An eagle represents all flying creatures. And the human is obviously the pinnacle of God's creation. That's why we're last and on day six. <laughs> that, that is the absolute consensus that I could see um, amongst the scholars and the commentaries about what they represent. My personal problem was just one thing, and maybe I'm looking into it too far, is if it represents all of creation, where are the sea creatures in the whole thing? <laughs> that's just my brain getting too analytical, but that's my job. <laughs> But however, if you were to read the commentators that I read, they would say this represents all of creation that has breath, that has life. Now, one thing is important. Everywhere we see them in the Bible, in Old Testament and New, they're always in close proximity to God. Even the Ark of the Covenant, you remember? In the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat where the blood was put on once a year, there were cherubim with wings touching that covered the mercy seat. But I want to suggest to you, just like the elders, what's most important in Revelation 4 is not, again, who, maybe who to identify them as, but also recognize their activity. What's their activity? And what's their primary role in heaven? Well, we read it in verse 8. It says, Day and night they did not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is, and who is to come. The chief role of these living creatures was to worship the living God and bring him the praise and adoration that was due. Not intermittently, a stop, you know, do it for 10 minutes and then take a six hour break. It said it was continuous. It was night and day, they did not cease. If uh, you were to try out to become a living creature, if, if that was a possibility, on your job, the job description would say, you need to be a worshiper of God. That's all you got to do. You never stop worshiping the Lord. That is your job description. Can you do that? <laughs> but what's cool is that their worship actually created a chain reaction in heaven. Look at verse 9. When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created." Their worship created a chain reaction where the 24 elders laid their crowns before God. Now, this would have been an image very familiar in the Roman Empire. Craig Coyster, in his commentary, says this, that when an emperor would come to town, he'd have his entourage around him. When they come to town, the... the, the, the the townspeople would hear of his coming. They would dress themselves in white, 
and have wreaths on their head. And then when they would come, they would lay their wreaths like at the, at the sort of like the chariot of the emperor as he's passing through town and, they have, and watch the heavenly entourage pass by him. Not the heavenly one, the earthly entourage pass by them. And so this was a practice where they wear white and place their crowns before the emperor in recognition of his sovereignty and authority and power. And no doubt, John has got that in mind as he's writing these things. And so he's saying this, first century Christians, you know, you in Genesis house, look at what the elders are doing and where the worship is directed. It's directed at the Lord God Almighty. And what I love about this is they had their own thrones in verse 4. The 24 elders sat on 24 thrones. The fact that they got off their thrones to worship God shows that they didn't care about their own honor. They weren't concerned with the authority they had on their own throne that they were sitting on. They abandoned their thrones to come before the center throne. And their, and their worship was full-on abandonment. No, no hindrances. Pretty, pretty cool and something to think about in our own worship. They didn't care how they were perceived by others. All they cared about was directing everything towards God. So let's look at their hymns just quickly here. And then we'll conclude. The hymn of the, of the living creatures is found in verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Really, they, act, they, they highlight three attributes of, of God in their praise. The holy, holy, holy attribute, like the holiness of God is really the otherness of God as distinct from creation, right? Creation has sin and is sort of defiled. God is sinless and has no defilement. The Lord God Almighty speaks to God's supremacy and authority and rule over the universe. In the Old Testament, when the Lord God Almighty is used, that's what the context usually is. And who was and is to come, of course, speaks to the eternal nature of God. If you, this is like almost equivalent to the I am statement of Moses in Exodus. So again, he speaks of his sinlessness, his holiness, his supreme authority, and eternal nature. And this is worth praise to the living creatures. But I really want to key in on the elders' praise, the 24 elders, because they say, Worthy are you, O Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. This is really important to notice. Why do they worship the Lord in this context? Because he's the creator and giver of life. All the praise is worth it and adoration for him because he is the creator of life. I started thinking about this, you know, more and more and more, thinking about God as creator of life. It explains now why God was so angry all through the scriptures when life is taken. If you're the creator of it and life is taken, it can lead you to severe anger. Can I give you some examples? In Genesis 6 and verse 13, God pronounces a worldwide judgment on the 
um, because of the sin of the, of the world, and it's going to come in the, in the nature of a flood. But what's key is one verse in there as to why the world is to be flooded. He says this in 613, At the end of flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence. God's synopsis of why the world is being destroyed, it's violent. There's, and you know what violence entails? That's loss of life. I think of Nineveh, when Jonah was sent there to preach. Jonah didn't want to go, but God wanted him to go. But the telling verse is actually in 3.8. We don't actually know what the problem with Assyria, or, uh, with uh, Nineveh is and the Assyrians. But the king reveals the nature of the problem of the nation. Because when he calls a fast, and he tells the whole, the whole uh, city to fast because they're afraid of God's judgment, here's what he says. Let man call on God to turn from anger because of our wicked way and our violence. The king says, we're a violent people. We don't have any respect for life. And God says, I'm going to judge that nation, that city, that, that nation because of that. Think of Israel and their demise and the exile, from, uh, exile out of the land both in 722 from Assyria and also from Babylon in 586. The reason why they were booted out of the land is actually quite complicated, and there's many things you could say. But one of the key things for why they were kicked out of the land was because of their violence. But it was their violence against children, the loss of life. I'm going to read to you Ezekiel 16.20. Here's the problem for God with Israel. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Man, that speaks to our culture today, hey? Called abortion clinics. You took your sons and your daughters and you sacrificed them to an idol. You worship God because he's the creator of life. And in all these examples from the Old Testament, they're taking life that God created. Oh man, it matters so important. It's so important to him to honor and respect life. And so this is why he's worthy of worship. I haven't written out formal lessons today, but I've got some thoughts, three thoughts that we should learn from this passage. And the first one is this. Regardless of what the circumstances of the world around us look like, God is ultimately in control and the ruler of this universe. This is the, this is the glasses that the Lord wants to put on your head right now if you've got this backwards. You might be thinking, where is God? He seems vacant. The message of John is, let me give you a new perspective. Let me help you understand how we understand the Lord. This is a word of assurance and comfort to struggling Christians. Using their context, he wants to let them know that the one on the throne is God and not the one in Rome, <laughs> right? He's actually the one in control of history. And although there's times when the world might seem like there are forces in control other than God, we are reminded here that that's just a state of temporary affairs. And it's such an important message in light of our time. 
for the first time probably in a, in a long time outside of like maybe those who like ice hockey, Canada has a worldwide attention. We've gained worldwide attention. And this is really important for us to remember this when we wonder like who's really in power here? And we put all of our, maybe our focus on what the prime minister is doing and taking our, and that's the glasses by which we view life and affects the way we live and think in a negative way, puts stress and anxiety on us. And that's the same it was for them in the Roman Empire under persecution and under struggles. And he says, let me give you a new perspective. Let's go to heaven and get your perspective right, get your vision fixed. Daryl Johnson in his book says this, Scripture never promises the visible circumstances of life will proclaim the sovereignty of God. The visible circumstances often call God's sovereignty into question. <laughs> and that's why we need to put on the Revelation 4 glasses. So I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know if it's a hard time for you or what. And it feels like the world's coming crashing down. But God is in control and worthy of our praise. And that's the message of Revelation. The second thing we can learn from the living creatures and elders is that what the living creatures and elders teach us is that worship is the appropriate response to God. That's what they teach us. That's how he is going to, like, this is important. Like, this is going to set the stage for the whole letter. And he's like, if you can get this right, the rest of the letter will be easy to endure and easy to bear. Well, not easy, but bearable. <laughs> what we learn from the revelation is that we are to be a worshiping people. And then when we are, it's a strong indicator that our vision is clear. It also acknowledges that we recognize him, that he's, that how awesome he is, and that our dependence is fully on him. There are hindrances to worship, though, aren't there? And I can speak from experience and just my own personal life, and I'm sure you can relate to what I'm saying, but there's sort of like two opposite things on either end of the spectrum. If you're, let's say, when it comes to things like songs and praise, if you're talented in music, it's the temptation is to want to grandstand that, and the focus is on you and not on God. On the flip side, in a church service, there's a lot of insecurities in us that don't let us let out actually how we want to praise God. I know for an absolute fact, everyone of you in here experiences that. For sure. Because what we think is, I'm afraid to worship God in this way because I worry what people will think of me if I do this. Both take the focus off of the Lord and put it on yourself. And they're both something we should learn from Revelation chapter 4. All praise and honor and glory are dedicated towards him. It's about him. It's not about you and I. And the elders and the living creatures teaches that. Along those lines, although our worship is to be press, expressed through songs and praise and prayers, it is ultimately expressed by our, lo our loyalty. This is going to be the re message of Revelation going forward and getting back to the context of the introduction. Isn't that true? He has to give them this vision in heaven because their loyalty has been 
compromised in many ways. Remember, the churches are lukewarm. They're dead. They've embraced Jezebel-type teaching. They've embraced the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Ephesus has lost their first love. They've fallen. They're falling. Now, some of them are doing really well in many areas, but Jesus points out some things that are going wrong. And so our worship is ultimately expressed by how loyal we are to the Lord in terms of the way we live. And our ultimate destiny will be determined by the extent we either resonate or rebel against that reality. And so I want to finish with one quote from Paul Spilsbury. He's the uh, professor at Regent College that I was fortunate enough to uh, sit under. And he wrote this in his book. Revelation calls us to think deeply about what it means to be loyal to the one on the throne. Even though the world seems dead set against believing that he even exists, it challenges us to count the cost of being associated with God and his ways of working in the world and the consequences of not being associated with God's great purposes for the history of the world. Something to think about. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word again and how alive and amazing it is. Uh, I know myself, I have a tendency to want to stand up and fight against what I see going on. And uh, thank you for the reminder today, Lord, that that's not putting you on the driver's seat of my life. It's to put you first and worship you first and understand and give you the awe and respect that you are entirely in control. And I pray, Lord, for wisdom for myself and for my fellow Christian brothers and sisters, that we seek you with knowing the right reactions and words, uh, sharing of information that we should be doing in order to uh, lead our families and be uh, great examples to those around us as uh, We need to be thinking about uh, adding to your kingdom because that brings you back sooner, Lord. And I pray for everybody here that they have an encouraging week, that uh, they're encouraged just to be closer with you, God, get into the Bible. And just because by us doing so, Lord, it transcends to our families and to those around us. Thank you again for this service. Thanks for Andrew's preparation. I pray that everybody has a safe trip home. Amen.